and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you today. Travis Christofferson is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out his first appearance on episode 127 of Boundless Body Radio, which is one of our most downloaded of all time. Travis Christofferson has a degree in molecular biology and has a master's degree in material engineering and science. He is a full-time science writer and published the best-selling book, Tripping Over the Truth, how the metabolic theory of cancer is overturning one of medicine's most entrenched paradigms, which shows how the metabolic theory of cancer is overturning one of medicine's most entrenched paradigms. He is also the author of Ketones, The Fourth Fuel, Warburg to Krebs to Veach, The 250-Year Journey to Find the Fountain of Youth. He also wrote the book we'll be discussing today, Curable, how an unlikely group of radical innovators is trying to transform our healthcare system. He is the founder of the Foundation for Metabolic Cancer Therapies and the co-founder of Care Oncology. Travis Christofferson, what an honor it is to welcome you back to Boundless Body Radio. Great to be back, Casey. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We had such a fun discussion last time, and it really was one of our most downloaded episodes. And we barely touched on the two books that we did talk about, and we definitely hardly even touched on your latest book. And so it's great to bring it back here and, and be able to discuss that with you today. Um, as we were kind of talking offline a little bit, we were kind of going back and forth on what we should talk about and what you wanted to talk about. And you said specifically, we can always talk about ketones. Ketones is one of my favorite topics. And I think they're mine too. Why have, how did you become so interested in ketones to begin with? Oh man, that goes back to, to tripping over the truth when I was researching this sort of non-standard cancer theory, the you know, metabolic theory of cancer. And it lead the low-hanging fruit of therapeutics was obviously a switch away from glucose metabolism to ketone metabolism. So that was 2014. And I just started reading, you know, the literature, the publications on the ketogenic diet. And there was not nearly as much then as there is now. If you look at a Google trend search of, of ketones, it just exploded around that time. So people became very interested in it, but, you know, it showed such incredible therapeutic potential for just a wide, almost, uh, you know, inconceivable amount of maladies from traumatic brain injury to Parkinson's, all neurodegeneration and obviously cancer. So it was just a dive into those publications and then realizing that, you know, it, it had this malign history of being the sort of pathological state and then sort of around the 70s began viewed as a sort of elegant adaptation to starvation. And now it's, you know, it's really exploded into um, not only therapies, but just potentially for optimizing health and so forth. But yeah, just absolutely fascinating biochemistry. The scientific story behind it's fascinating because of the, the, the characters involved in the science were so such compelling people. Yeah. So yeah, it's still an ongoing fascination. There's still, you know, a lot of research to be done. That's amazing. You are so good in all of your books at weaving together the science and the biology with those stories. You're like the best history teacher that I never had. Like you're really good at exploring the context and the situations and, you know, all the work of Otto Warburg is amazing, but under a certain context is even more rich and dynamic. And you do such a good job telling those stories. I really can appreciate that for somebody who hears ketone and they think, oh yeah, I know what that is. Um, I saw a magazine cover at the grocery store and I think I'm supposed to eat a bunch of butter and, you know, chug the butter in my coffee and maybe eat lots of bacon. Can you explain like the difference between like what most people may think of when they hear keto versus what the actual molecule is, how it originates in the body and some of the things that it does? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so the way I think of the ketogenic diet is sort of the nutritional 
maintenance of the fasting state. And, and the way ketones were first discovered is when a person just doesn't eat for a period of time, their body really has no choice but to start mobilizing fat and, and generating ketones as a, as a source of, of to replace glucose because you're, you burn through carbohydrates in about 24, 36 hours, and then there's, there's none left in store. So your body's faced with this crisis. And when it mobilizes fat, it begins this sort of biochemical process of burning it called beta oxidation. To do that, it cleaves off two carbon chunks um, to acetyl-CoA, that enters the cell. And then there's a huge spillover effect of that as acetyl-CoA. And so there's enzymes waiting to convert that to what we call ketone bodies in the liver. And then those are exported in the circulation to replace glucose, especially for the brain, which can burn up to two thirds of, of ketones when you're in this fasted state. So it's really, you know, it's a replacement for when you're, when you don't have food, the ketogenic diet just sort of as a hack to maintain that fasted state. So you just drop carbohydrates down to, to a very low level and you up your fat and then you stay in that, you know, kind of the fasted state. Um, whether that's natural, you know, that you, you have to go back through evolutionary history and really be able to pin down what people ate to know if a ketogenic diet is a natural diet that we sort of evolved eating or not. But certainly we evolved to not eat for periods of time. You know, so so all that all that still has to be sorted out. Whether maintaining a ketogenic diet for a healthy person over a long period of time is a good idea or should you cycle, those those sorts of questions need to be worked out. Sure. Yeah. But, but the idea that humans can go longer than a few days without glucose, it's such a foreign concept, or at least it was for a long time. Um, you mentioned the studies and we talked about this last time. Are we still referring to some of those Cahill studies where he did the 40 day fasting and showed where the different fuel sources were coming from and how different parts of the body were utilizing them? Yeah, you know, Cahill was a pioneer. He, he was the one that looked at this first through the lens of a adaptation that was beneficial to humans, not as a pathological state. And he was, when you did the math on carbohydrate metabolism, nobody could figure out how a human could not eat for 30 days. So a normal weight person can go, you know, easily 30 days without eating as long as they have water. And the math didn't work out because you burn through blood glucose too fast. At that time, it was thought that the brain could only use glucose. And so he was the first one to prove, to show that the brain switched over to the, this sort of um, it had this hybrid capacity to switch over to ketone bodies. And that solved the dilemma of how can a person go so long without eating? The longest fast ever was a guy. He went, I think, a year and 11 days. You know, he had plenty of uh, fuel to start with. I think he weighed 400 pounds when he started, but he was fine. You know, they gave him some electrolytes and supplements, but but he was fine for over a year without food. Wow, that's incredible. I can say just anecdotally, well, I had a client once that would do extended fast during the week. He would have his last meal on Sunday, and then he literally would just have coffee in the mornings and wouldn't eat again until Friday. And I trained him on Tuesdays and Fridays, and he would come into the gym hungry on Tuesday. He would not be hungry on Friday. And dude, I kid you not, he would PR deadlifts on Friday. He felt great. You wouldn't think that would be possible. It's incredible. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting. My son, he's a he's a sprint athlete. Yeah. You know, deadlift, same thing. So he he's a push athlete for the USA bobsled team. And these guys are, if you're going to go to the far end of the spectrum of athletes, they're the dragsters. You know, they are just designed to sprint for 15, 30 meters as fast as you can, carrying a load. And um, 
you know, in a fasted state, there's plenty of blood glucose there to make. And, you know, if you're taking creatine and you have enough phosphate energy, you can explode like that. So it's not a detriment to, I don't think it's a detriment at all to, to those sort of sprint activities. Yeah, that's awesome. I also know of somebody in um, England who just completed some five days of cycling where they were doing like at least 100K every single day and they did the whole thing fasted. And I know they documented a lot of their health metrics and numbers and just, you, you're right, like sprinting. You wouldn't even think you could be able to do that. Sprinting with no, you know, quote unquote fuel. We j- I just think we so much underappreciate what our bodies can do with so little inputs it can just kind of sort things out itself yeah we're, we're incredibly adaptive yep. yeah that's that's a good and, and tweakable it's it's always amazing to me like even taking certain supplements or things like that you, you can dramatically change just the physiology and biochemistry that's going on in the body and it's got an amazing recovery capacity bounce back from insults you know it's it's we don't give it enough credit. It's an incredible machine. Yeah. One of the, I, I totally agree. One of the cool things from the Cahill studies that, that I, you know, really didn't appreciate at first was the gluconeogenesis that happens in the body. I think that most people would think like, okay, I don't have carbohydrate fuel, so I need it from somewhere. So now I'm going to ramp up my gluconeogenesis. My body is just going to start removing muscle tissue like gangbusters to turn it into sugar. But the thing I didn't appreciate was as your body is reducing its need for sugar, sugar, the need, the need of gluconeogenesis reduces so low that it can get it from other sources besides muscle. You can absolutely maintain muscle mass in an extended fast just fine. Oh yeah. 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 Ketones are, you know, they always say muscle sparing, which I think is sort of a, a, a funny thing to say because glucose is muscle sparing, right? Anything you can burn beyond protein is muscle sparing, but you, you, the way your body patchworks together, the metabolism to replace blood glucose when you don't have carbs there's all kinds of pathways. It's not just gluconeogenesis. For example, a bear that hibernates, right? They, they don't need as much glucose because their brains are not as big. Humans are special because we have this huge metabolic sink, our brains. It costs us 20% of our basal metabolism. So it's a big problem for us when we don't eat. And But what bears can do is just by burning the fat they've stored, when when you it comes with triglycerides, you cleave off the glycerol molecule, three carbon, they can use that glycerol to make glucose. So they never even need to, to you know, use protein to, for gluconeogenesis to replace glucose. We do that. We do all sorts of alternative pathways to replace the blood glucose. So it's not necessarily just the, you know, the, the gluconeogenesis from protein that's feeding it. Such a great point. That's fascinating. Yeah. We've already mentioned cancer and we talked quite a bit about cancer last time, but just to reiterate how, how beneficial are ketones in the, the cancer treatment world? And what have we learned even more recently about that? It's still an ongoing thing, Casey. And you know, what's frustrating is the clinical trials are so hard to do because there's no money to be made. You know, you, you, there's no drug, patentable drugs. So you got to rely on foundations or when the NIH is feeling sort of philanthropic. But um, it, it's when you look at what happens. So cancer cell has an insatiable appetite for glucose. We know that. That's what a PET scan is. A PET scan is radio labeled glucose. And you can visualize tumors that way. You inject somebody with radio labeled glucose and the tumor cells preferentially take it up and trap it in the cell. So the key, the idea behind the ketogenic diet is you bring down blood glucose, you replace it with, with a ketone body, which has to be burned in the mitochondria. And we know that cancer cells have impaired mitochondrial function. 
whether it's intentional by the cancer cell or is damaged, that's still an ongoing debate. But we know that they don't like to burn ketones as much. So what you get is you get this, this rarely happens in pharmacology, this beautiful therapeutic differential where healthy cells have switched over to burning ketones, which causes them to go into this regenerative reparative state. They become very robust to insult, right? And then the cancer cells are struggling because they, they're not getting enough energy to make to fuel all their growth and especially to mop up free radicals. They're always on this very precarious edge of dying from oxidative stress. And that's what radiation and chemo is, is oxidative stress. So you set them up, you set up the cancer cells to die easier and healthy cells to um, you know, go through insult more. So when you put have somebody in that state and then you give them chemotherapy or radiation, you see a more dramatic effect, you see a more therapeutic effect, but you also see a huge reduction in, in side effects. So when someone's on chemo, you, you can measure the number of times they vomit. That can go from seven a day, literally to zero when someone's in a fasted wow. ketogenic state. Hair growth, mouth sores, all the things you can count go down. And the subjective things like fatigue and things like that. So I think that's where it's got a real potential is just, you know, I, I envision in the future, there'll be three branches of oncology. There'll be radiation, um, uh, meta, or, um, uh, medical oncology, which is chemo and drugs, and metabolic. And so you, you'll have somebody put people in this state before they get standard care. And it's, it's moving in that direction. They're noticing all kinds of drugs work better on the ketogenic diet, you know, at major cancer institutions. We're trying to fund a trial, the ketogenic diet on glioblastoma alongside standard care at Cedar cyanide So I think within, you know, if you have me on again in five years, I think it'll be a much different landscape. I really hope so. I really, really yeah. hope so. Yeah. I mean, incurable, which we're going to talk about here in a second, but incurable, you make the case that like we're diagnosing more cancer now, but we're not changing the survival rates. Like what is going on right. with that? And, and, you know, I asked you this question. I love asking people who do the research, this question, what would you do if somebody gave you the diagnosis, knowing everything, you know, what would you do? And most of us can sit around and we can theorize what we might do, but we don't actually maybe know what we would choose in, in that state. We've hosted uh, Martha Tettenborn on our show who, who was given a cancer diagnosis and she was a registered nurse and she did the research herself. And so she learned that if she was on mostly like very strict keto during the procedure, and then when they traveled to, I want to say Toronto to get the treatments done, she would do 48 hours fasted before the treatment, 24 hours after full fast. She was a little tired. She never got sick. Um, she was fully functional. She made all her meals. Meals, like talk about somebody who like really had to put their money where their mouth was and she did great. And now she's sharing that message along, the, you know, so many other people that are trying this themselves that, yeah, nobody's talking about this because nobody's going to make money on a trial, but you can do this easily for free. And whether it's going to, you know, work with cancer and you don't have to do other treatments is kind of controversial, but at least it will be helpful. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would do a, a number of those things. And I always have to preface that with, you know, every case is individual. So if somebody wanted to fast before chemo, they, they would need to have a medical workup because if they're late stages of cachexia, you know, they may not be able to lose weight. It may be detrimental. So always work with, with other people. But yeah, for me, I, when you look at medicine, it's always done through the lens of risk reward. So I look at a ketogenic diet as extraordinarily low risk, and that's already been proven. It's very safe in a cancer setting and with help, people that are, you know, in a, a decent uh, functional state. 
And, and so why not? Why wouldn't you do that? I would look at all, you know, the, under the repurposed drugs that we know are safe that have anti-cancer activity, combinations of those. There's some nutraceuticals that have incredible early data like luteolin, apigenin, those kind of, kind of things. Um, so I just, I couldn't imagine, you know, I think doctors probably do when it happens to them way more than they would recommend to patients under most settings. So I, you know, I, I look at from that end of risk reward, I, I would just do all the combinations of all those things I could. Yeah. Why not? It, it also, when you think of the cancer problem, it always leads you to, well, how do you not get cancer in the first place? Right. How do you prevent it from happening? And that that's where I think a ketogenic diet could, or, or fat intermittent fasting, whatever, you know, is determined, proven to work could have a huge role to play because one of the most astounding aspects of being in ketosis is you get this dramatic ability to, to antioxidant effect. So you get an upregulation of all these enzymes that quench free radicals like superoxide dismutase, catalase, but you also get this huge increase in glutathione, the ability of glutathione to mop up free radicals. Free radicals, we know, break DNA. DNA can trigger cancer, whether it's, usually it's not the genetic mutation itself, it can be, it's a combination of mutations, but that triggers a whole series of other epigenetic things that can lead to cancer. Um, and ketosis prevents free radicals, which prevents DNA breaks. So, so you know, that may be one way to just not get cancer in the first, or at least reduce the probability of getting cancer in the first place. Sure, or make it move slower so that it, yeah, maybe you do have cancer, but it's not going to advance before you're going to pass away of natural causes anyway. It's so interesting. There's yeah. just so many benefits on so many levels. It's like... It, it, we look at it as like you're going to go on the ketogenic diet or being ketosis, but it's, it, it really seems more like, no, we have a real lack of ketosis in our natural lives because of all the crap that we've set up for ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree. That, that line in the New York Times article that Gary Taubes wrote, I think in 2004, 2006, maybe, Richard Veach was quoted as saying, you know, it, the natural state of mankind is to starve occasionally. And that's, that's a huge question. What, have we stepped that far out of our natural physiology that we're, we're way more sickly than we should be, right? Should we have cancer rates like this? Because we don't see those in the wild with animals. So we've stepped out of this biological niche that is conducive to good health into this new era. You know, that probably happened about 12,000 years ago with modern agriculture when we just drastically shifted our diet. Yeah. And, and then became very indolent, you know, desk jobs. We solved energy problems. We didn't have to chop wood anymore. So it's a sort of collision of lifestyle events that have led us to this, what I would call an unnatural state. And yeah, I think when you look at the benefits of ketosis so far in the literature from neurodegeneration to diabetes to, you know, you just go down to the, every, almost every chronic disease, right? That That's the biggest burden in the healthcare system. So yeah, it, does, it begs the question is... It, how can something be that beneficial if it's not something that's evolutionary baked in to be this therapeutic effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great point. It's so ironic that technology is what makes us human. You know, banging two rocks together to make a tool makes us human, yet that same technology comes back to bite us in the ass, you know, 12,000 12, 12, years ago with agriculture we and everything. Solve one, 
solve one problem and create another. That's right. We're good at that. <laughs> We're good at that. And selling it to you, making some money off of it, <laughs> which is a great segue into Curable. What an amazing book. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to it. Um, let's talk about you writing the book and how you came to this idea. But first of all, can you explain what a crappy baseball team from 20 years ago has to do with Berkshire Hathaway has to do with our medical system? <laughs> You know, I wish I would have shortened that intro a little bit because it's I, I was making too many points at once. But yeah, <laughs> the Oakland A's, it's funny because my dad, my dad's business partner for 20 years was the second baseman for the Oakland A's when they won those three World Series. No Dick way. Green, he was, wow. yeah, the, the the Reggie Jackson, they won the in the early 70s, won three World Series in a row. So I always liked the Oakland A's, but then, and then the movie Moneyball came out and it, it's just a perfect example. You know, the book is about, the book, I would say the book really is about when you look at a chart, there's a really just eye-popping graph in the world and data website where it shows the life expectancy of like 15 developed countries. So European countries and, and us and Australia, all, all the, what we call developed advanced economies. And we are dead last in lifespan and spend by far more than anybody per capita in healthcare. So the question is, okay, from that chart, what are we doing wrong? You know, we're doing something drastically wrong. And then the the segue to that is, well, you know, medicine was always practiced under this ethos of autonomy. Physician instinct was always the coveted thing. And there's a quote by Hippocrates that a physician's instinct matters more than any external measurement. And that ethos is carried on till today where we rely we count on doctors to be these sort of sovereign islands of, of uh, you know, making these incredibly hard decisions under clouds of uncertainty. And we just do not use data like we should in healthcare. And so the Oakland A's were a perfect example of that. They were, they have an extraordinarily low budget, like three times lower than the New York Yankees. They're at the bottom of the list, but somehow they win all the time. And, and the way they do it is they, they sidestep all the human biases that come with picking players. So most teams will use talent scouts and they'll, they'll pick players based on flawed instinct, right? If you cut through that with data, you can find these mispriced gem players that, that don't look, talent scouts hate, they might be you know short, just not look like athletes or whatever, but the data screams that they're good baseball players. So yeah, the, when, when Billy Bean took over and started using data to pick players, Every player that ran out was based on a mathematical formula, right? And they started, they just were incredibly good for their budget. And, and that would that's a model for what we could do for healthcare if we did it right, is just start using data way better and relying less on human instinct. Yeah. You have another sports reference, Jeremy Lin, which I think was a really good um, thing that people will probably remember. Lin Sanity, like 10 years ago, yeah. who who is this guy, where did he come from? He doesn't exactly fit the mold of what you would expect, but what an amazing baseball player, a basketball player. And, and, you know, people knew if you knew the math, if you knew the stats, he could have been plugged in way earlier. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. His, the bias they had against him was they just didn't consider Asian American players. They, they'd never seen great Asian American players, you know, so the talent scouts passed him up over and over. And then they did athletic tests. And he was incredibly athletic, explosive, you know, acceleration, vertical jump, everything. But he just had this intangible quality of passing and, and making his team better that you really can't instinctually see. 
but the data, you know, was able to uncover that. And finally, I think it was the Houston Rockets. They adopted a money ball, like sort of methodology to picking players. And they, they, I think they actually passed him up and, but even though the data said it was great, they still let their biases, you know, take over and passed over him. And yeah, then he went on to Lynn Sanity and he was incredible. Wow. Yeah, that's such a good point. I'm glad you included that in the book. Um, those days were really fun. It was fun to follow him back then. It, does he even right, still play? Right. I don't even know. I don't know if he does or not. Funny. That's a good question. Yeah, funny. Yeah. Well, that leads us to the question, like, how good are we at making decisions? Well, yeah, that, that goes back to, you know, all the sort of foundation of most social sciences that were good at it, right? Economics, um, psychology, forever thought that humans were rational creatures and usually made rational decisions. But then these two Israeli economists came up or psychologists came along and like, that just doesn't ring true to us. So they started really studying it and they just in situation after situation, they were able to prove how flawed our thinking is. Uh, like, for example, they, they would use college students. They were both professors and they would ask their class, say a hundred college students, the price of something they didn't know, for example, wine. No one had a clue what this bottle of wine should cost. But before they had them guess what the price should be, they had them write down the two, the last digits of their social security number. The, the group of students that had higher digits, last two digits, invariably answered with a higher number. So that's called the, um, what is that one called? That's called the anchoring bias. So once you anchor your thinking to a higher number in this case, your, your subsequent decisions are, are, you know, biased by that anchor. And, you know, just one example of that after the other, where we, our logic is just incredibly thought, flawed in our thinking. And a good example in the healthcare field with that is in the 1980s, there was two treatments for lung cancer. There was surgery and radiation. And surgery came on, came, came with a much better survival rate. But if the doctor said, okay, um, surgery has a better survival rate, but it comes with a 10% chance of death. Only about 50% of the people chose surgery over radiation. If the doctor said surgery has a better survival rate, but it comes with a 90% chance of survival, then 80% of the patients chose surgery. So it's a pure, you know, that situation, life and death is purely, should be purely completely objective and statistical, but just based on that framing, how the doctor framed it, people would have make wildly different decisions. That part really surprised me. I, I couldn't believe the difference in those two things. You just said exactly the same thing, but worded it differently, put it in a different perspective. And the, the numbers that you see, it, it's so vast. Did that surprise you as well? Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. And that, that goes to what you were talking about earlier, that we were much better at diagnosing cancer, right? And so, what, like, for example, thyroid cancer, we're way better at diagnosing it, but the, the death rates haven't changed. So, so what happens is you get, what happens is you will have, you will now tell somebody that they might have cancer and you'll use that word, use that word. Now they're terrified. And if you have cancer, you want to treat it. So they will demand treatment. In, there's a lot of cases where the, you know, these cancers are benign, slow growing. They don't, they don't represent a real health, I mean, mortality risk at that point. But once you say that word cancer, you, you put people in the state of mind where they almost demand treatment. So we horribly over treat now with chemotherapy, surgery, surgery, radiation, just because we, you know, the way it's framed. And so we need just, it, it's incredibly complex, but you need to somehow train doctors to walk that back and, and, you know, 
that just represents how hard the problem is. Sure. Is this also a result of our diagnostic tools getting so much better? We're able to pick up trace amounts of things that we wouldn't have bothered with in the past. Is that part of it? Yeah. Yeah. More people get screening and we're, we're better at screening. And, you know, th this new age of, of blood biopsies is coming along where you take a simple blood draw and they'll be able to tell you with some probability whether you have cancer or not, which that, that opens up a whole question of, of, you know, will this be a net benefit to society? Because you're going to be telling people they have cancer when in some case you're going to get false positives no matter what. That's just the nature of any test. So that, that remains to be worked out. But yeah, the, the diagnostics is getting incredibly good. Yeah. Is prostate cancer another good example of a slow moving cancer for most people that it's like, yeah, we could maybe do an operation at age 70 or we, you know, we'll be better off just letting it ride. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Prostate cancer. Like I, I think you probably remember in the book, Charlie Munger, um, he just marks off the PSA. He's, he's 90, I think he's 98. His doctor tries to test for PS, PS, uh, Sorry, prostate specific antigen PSA every time he goes in, but he just crosses it off. He says, why do you do that? Charlie he goes, cause I don't want to give you the opportunity to do anything dumb. <laughs> cause right. Mo most, most men will have some degree of prostate cancer when they're older, but it probably won't kill them. Yeah. So now you open the door of you, you, you know, if you suspect it's there, you, surgeons may want to operate. They may want to give drugs and, and prostate cancer is a perfect example. There's five treatments for prostate cancer. There's watch and wait based on a PSA diagnosis, watch and wait, surgery, and then three different forms of radiation from the cheapest form, the middle range form to the highest form, which is uh, proton beam therapy, which is, I think, about $120,000. Wow. The, the problem is not one of those five therapies has been proven to be better than the other. So watch and wait costs about maybe 2000 and just sort of advanced surveillance, checking more, where, where the proton beam is 120. And you look at the data and you can see which one's getting prescribed more and more. It's the most expensive one. Wow. So that's another flaw in the system is, is we incentivize doctors through the fee for service to charge more. Right. So you get this over treatment problem. Wow. And it, it, it's such a systemic issue. I was so surprised also to hear the numbers of, you know, similar demographics, different hospital systems, you would think, you know, maybe incentivized by the same thing. And they probably are, but, but it's a systemic issue where if you're in one system, like you might be more entrepreneurial minded and you might be pushing those things a little bit more so you can make more money where other people might just think they're doing the very best thing. How, it, it would be so hard to be, you know, totally entrenched in whatever everybody else is doing around you. The variation in treatment is frightening. So, so you can measure that very well, just how different doctors treat the same ailment. So, for example, you can drive. There's two towns in Ohio, one Cincinnati and then some smaller towns 50 miles away. You're two times more likely to get a stent put in in that small town for the same diagnosis. There's a 15-fold difference in back surgeries between different counties in Washington it's, it, it, I mean, some doctors in the primary care setting will order two times the amount of MRIs as another doctor in the same, in the same clinic. So the variation in treatment is, is crazy. And you know, that, that just means that there's, it's a zero sum game. There's one right answer in those, each medical thing. And they're not, so you're just not getting the right answer a lot of the time, the right, the right procedure. And, and it, it goes, you know, the extreme example that was read in California, where there was a heart institute 
where they were just operating on everybody that walked through the door. If you showed any minuscule, even hint of blockage, they would put you on the operating table. And so the regulators finally, it was a self, self-perpetuating self thing because their statistical data went up because they're operating on healthier and healthier people, right? For healthy 40-year-olds were getting an operation. So their mortality data looked good because nobody was dying. They're operating on healthy people most of the time. And so they thought they were doing the right thing. And when the regulators came in, they just put the hammer down. They thought it was just purely a money grab. These guys were doing this just to capture money. But then the reporters came in and they realized these guys genuinely thought they were doing the right thing. One of the staff there flew his mom in from Chicago to have her operated on. That's how, you know, they were just fervently believed they were doing the right thing. So, yeah, you get this psychological ratcheting effect peer to peer where it can just go really, really bad, really wrong. Sure. And I, I, to me, that goes back to the decision-making process. And you think like, okay, I'm, I'm sitting in front of a doctor. He went to school for eight years, really smart guy. He's going to be able to make the right decision. Can you maybe explain some of the complexities that these doctors have to deal with, even just in the number of prescriptions they can write? Oh, it's yeah, doc. And that's the problem is we count on them. We, we, we sort of, you know, we put them on this pedestal. That they that they're going to make the right decision, but their their job is just destined to they're destined to fail in that situation because medicine is just too complex. Most of it is operating in uncertain situations all the time. You know, it was always tradition, very thin evidence to take out to surgically remove kidneys for advanced kidney cancer. Then they finally did the trial and showed that there was no benefit to that over the chemotherapy alone. But they you know they were doing both and. And just based on, on more tradition than anything. So th- those are the studies we need to, to remove that uncertainty for doctors. So we need just a better marriage between the ability to capture that data, to do those trials, to provide those guardrails for doctors, you know, to, to make better clinical decisions. And that doesn't mean you have to get rid of the, the intuition doctors have, because that can be magical too. You know, there's, there's many cases where doctors just based on intuition and years of experience did have done incredible things. So you don't want to remove that, but you want to provide these guardrails to sort of, you know, keep them from these incredibly hard decisions to keep them sort of guided down the right path. Yeah. I, you and I were talking a little bit offline and it kind of reminds me of the airline industry and like how many billions of people fly all over the world without anything happen, like magically 550 miles an hour at 35,000 feet and they don't die they ever, ever like planes don't crash very often. And it's, it's remarkable. And even when things go wrong, pilots can make really good decisions when it comes down to it, but, and, and they still have that creativity to be able to do that. But you're mentioning guardrails. Like there's so many guardrails and checklists and all these things that you have to do to be able to put that chunk of metal in the air, carrying 200 people. Like, why can't it be more like that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, when I mow my lawn, I'm very aware that my mo- my motor can stop at any minute, just quit running. I always think of that when I'm on an airplane. How does this thing just never, how does it always work? <laughs> and it comes, you said checklist. And that's, you know, the, the airline industry has gotten so good. Whenever there's a problem, they build in a redundant safety system. So they've just checked off anything that can go wrong over the decades to this point of almost perfection. And, and we did that. I can't remember the year, but they did that. In a, they did a clinical tr- trial where they instituted surgical checklists, right? 
just to eliminate human error, make sure you give the antibiotics before surgery, make sure and you have to check it off to eliminate the doctors from forgetting. The mortality rates drop by 40%. So, so without those, you know, those checklists, those, those, those things that govern the, our ability, you know, because the, the, we're going to make mistakes, the things that, that govern those, without those there, you're just going to continue to have those sorts of problems. And we just, we don't do that well at all in medicine. Wow. That's absolutely crazy. We talked a little bit about uh, patentable drugs. I thought this was fascinating. And I knew that there was, there were certain things that would happen if you wanted to patent a drug and how the pharmaceuticals have those, you know, what is it, 10 or 15 years that they can make a ton of money before they lose the patent and basically anybody can copy it and the, and the, the, the pills prescription can become generic. Can you talk a little bit about that and what issues um, arise from that, that problem? Yeah. 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 So that, that's, you're right. So that's the process, right? We go through all these phase one, phase two, phase three. It takes decades, um, billions of dollars sometimes. And then we, the FDA will approve a drug for that indication. So, so let's use metformin as an example. It went through that process, got approved for type two diabetes. Now what happens is now it's prescribed uh, throughout the population in mass. So you get, now you get decades of clinical data of it being prescribed in this disease population. Now you can discover new things. Like it was noticed that there's huge reductions in cancer rates with type two diabetics that are taking metformin. So you'll notice other things, you know, other diseases that are potentially be good that has reductions in while it's being prescribed. But now because it's become a generic, there's no incentive for the pharmaceutical company to win an indication for that new disease. So what you do is you leave a lot of pharmacological potential on the table because of that. They're sort of stranded in this financial purgatory. And that's this idea of repurposing drugs, right? And, and metformin is, is really interesting because it looks a lot like the ketogenic diet. You see reductions in all kinds of diseases when people are on metformin. And there, there's no incentive to study it. But what we look at metformin pharmacologically, what it looks like it's doing is really targeting the aging process. Um, it's slowing aging down. So you just get this reduction in chronic disease in general. And they've been trying to do a trial called the TAME trial, targeting aging through with metformin um, for a long time. And the NIH finally agreed to uh, classify, they, they couldn't kick it off because the NIH wouldn't consider aging a disease and drugs are for diseases, right? Not, not aging. So they finally reclassified it. They got the funding, but then COVID stopped, um, stopped it, but it should start back up. So how, how amazing would it be? You know, it's about a, a few pennies a pill. It's extraordinarily safe. If you could give this to people in their 60s, slow down aging, prevent, uh, reduce the probability of all kinds of chronic disease. And, but those kind of things just sort of get lost by the wayside. We have this weird sort of methodology where we try to treat disease once it's become entrenched in the body instead of really, really considering how do we prevent it. And that's been the, you know, the overwhelming imperative behind pharmaceutical companies for as long as they've been around. Talk, I mean, perfect example is type 2 diabetes. Let's let you have controlled glucose while your insulin is going bananas for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and then only when your glucose starts to rise, oh, well, maybe this is a problem. We should start to deal with this. Like, this has been a problem for decades. Yeah. Have you, have you ever talked to Benjamin Bickman? Have you absolutely. had him on the show? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That that to me is one of the most just crazy points in the world. You know, ben, Ben's big 
sort of push is that we just, we're not, we don't characterize type 2 diabetes the right way. So you just said it perfectly because insulin's rising for decades before glucose does. Why don't we start targeting those people? You know, and, and, and there's all kinds of things you can do, like ketogenic diet, a low carb diet. That's how you can target it at that point. But we, there's no emphasis on that whatsoever. You just wait till they're actually sick. And then we start giving them drugs and don't tell them what to eat. That That's one of the most black and white, obviously think, you know, flawed ways that we've healthcare is treated a disease. Yeah, absolutely crazy. And and I, it, it does come down to money. So I want to ask you just, just your opinion. Do you fault the the big pharma for some of these issues? It doesn't really seem like it's, it's really their fault. If they can't make money on some of these trials, th- that's yeah. just kind of the system we have. Is it, is it their responsibility? You don't fault anybody. Yeah. I, they're just doing what they, what they, can do within the confines, right? Of course, there's nefarious players. There's nefarious people in every industry, right? But they're incentivized to make incremental improvements on things they know that can work. So like in, in the cancer setting, we tip, when a drug gets approved, it sometimes it might come in for one month of survival. You might be sick that whole month, but that's what you, you know all you get. So yeah, they're incentivized to not like swing for the fences and do things that can really matter. And then, you know, you've got this problem of them sinking a billion dollars into a drug and they have to recoup it. So the prices are, are just crazily high. It's, it's not, it, it's, I don't know how you fix that until you can incentivize people to care about prevention. And, and there's, you know, there's some decent examples of that where in a primary care setting, typically it's fee for service. So you're getting paid to, to treat sick people, Right. The more sick people, the higher you're going to get paid. What they're doing is they're giving doctors a bolus of money per patient, and they get to keep that money if their patient stays well. Mm. So now you've completely turned their incentive structure 180 degrees. Now these doctors are focused on on diet, on, on telling people how to stay healthy and really trying to do that instead of just waiting till they get sick and then making their money. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good thought. Um, just with some of these low cost options. So we have, you know, intermittent fasting or ketogenic diet or repurposing drugs. We already know a lot about, and it's just about like collecting data and testing it in in different ways to see if it's can be multi-purposed. Although that sounds really smart. We know that the, you know, the supplement market for probiotics has gone through the roof in the last few years. You seem to have a favorite probiotic that's even less expensive than that. Can you tell us your exploration and low cost probiotic treatment? in the form of fecal transfers. <laughs> that was a good segue to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah, that that was when I I looked at the health, you know, the biggest problems that seem in the healthcare system were what we talked about over treatment. That's very easy to measure and and the variation in treatment. And then the other one are these low-hanging fruit things like the checklist we talked about. Um hand washing has always been a problem. How do you get do- doctors wash hands when you get them to to wash their hands regularly, you see a huge drop in infection rates. And that was one example of this low-hanging fruit that got dismissed for so long. And what you're talking about is a fecal transplant. So there's a problem where people get hospital-acquired infections, typically called C. diff, Clostridium difficile. And it's a horrible, horrible disease. It goes into the colon and just, just, you know, if you can't get rid of it, you just slowly get sicker and sicker until you die. And... Typically, antibiotics work about 75% of the time, the first round of antibiotics. And if, it, if you don't clear it at that time, the second round is even, you have less of a hope of it clearing, third round even less. So it's a terrible sort of spiral downhill. 
it was back in the 50s, there was a doctor in Denver that just had, and this is back to this intuition, he had a sort of insightful moment where he's like, well, he had some patients that after surgery, after they unboxed some surgery, were getting, you know, C. diff. And he called it, well, what if we could restore the balance of nature? What he meant was restore the eco, the probiotic ecosystem in the colon. So he had some nurses go to the maternity ward and collect some feces from, I think it was from pregnant women, because he thought, you know, they would be, they're screened and they're healthy. And um, and then he just did a just did an enema with that into the patients, and they were four of them that were sick recovered. So that was back in the 50s, and no one really, veterinarians have been doing this for quite some time, but no one really took it seriously or thought about it. And then it sort of cropped up. There was a few doctors doing it, and then it cropped up in the internet. And this is, I, I, in the book, I focus on this, this grandma from, I think it was Ohio, and it was Catherine Duff, and she was in the late stages of a C. diff infection. Nothing was working. She was literally dying. And th- there was tens of thousands of people doing it online at that point. You could just download a YouTube and how to do a fecal transplant. So her husband provided the, you know, the, the feces and she did it. And she literally felt better that day. Wow. And so she was just, just impassioned to get this message out. And at that time, the NIH knew about this. There was a clinical trial going on and they were comparing um, people with C. diff. They'd give them a fecal transplant or antibiotics. In the trial, the, the people getting the fecal transplant, 94% were cured. The 6% that weren't, you just did it again, they were cured. And the antibiotic group at that point only showed a third were, were getting better. So they immediately stopped the trial and gave all the other people, you know, the crossover. They gave them the fecal transplant. So the NIH had that data and they were having a meeting about what to do with the fecal transplant. And it just got lost into this huge, well, we don't know how to regulate it. There could be problems. There's this vague idea that if, if you took the feces from an obese person, maybe they might gain weight 10 years later from their probi- you know, from their from their um, microbiome. And so they, they were going to put it under an IND, or a, a IRB, an investigational review boards, and an IND status, investigational drug. So anytime a doctor did it, they'd have to go through this litter, you know, three-inch thick of paperwork to even do it. So nobody would do it. It and was you said effectively it would just, take like a year or something, right? Yeah, yeah, to, wow. to do the IND status. So no one was going to do it. They effectively stopped it. So she stood up and spoke. And it was like, you know, people are dying from this today, right now. And and you guys are going to mire these doctors in paperwork. They're not going to be able to get this. No one cares if they gain weight 10 years from now. They can sort that out later. They're going to die in a few days. And so she sort of, you know, lent, added back in this rationality of a, a real patient dealing with the problem. And then they they did they did change the so they could get by, you know, doctors could do it without without risk of liability at that point. But this took for this took so long and everybody knew it was a cure, but no one, no doctor wanted to be the first one mixing poop in a blender in the office, you know, and there's, there's a myriad of reasons why they didn't do it, but now it's pretty much standard of care. They they do it all that there's poop banks where if they're super healthy, you can donate your poop and get paid. Wow. 
Um, but it took forever for that to start to happen. Wow. No, that's amazing. And I think as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, like you combining the biology and the science with the story was so fascinating. Picturing that room where this one person, she's the only person that's not involved with the, with the FDA or something. And she gets up and makes this like impassioned speech on day two of two and gets a standing ovation and revives yeah. the talk about that. That's a, what a crazy cool story. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That was just that was an amazing story, you know. And and you, I kind of remember the evolution of it. I remember when my local hospital here was just kind of they were one of the first ones to kind of adopt it and say, "This is legit. We need to start doing this." And and I don't know if they make the pills because now you can either take a pill or do the enema, but they were one of the, the first ones to do it. But it, it the adoption rate was just painfully slow, so people literally would just go to a do it yourself on YouTube and learn how to do it. And, and literally tens of thousands of people were doing it a year on their own. Wow. And seeing those amazing results like that day or the next day or whatever, just super quick. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, think about it. it it's just an ecosystem. So you have this one pathological back, you take antibiotics, you wipe out the ecosystem. This one pathological bug takes hold. And, it, and usually you have all those bugs in there that keep everything in check. And some, most people have some C. diff, but it's kept in check by that microbiome. So it just makes absolute, you know, that's why vets were doing it because they just have that horse sense. Well, yeah, you just put the ecosystem back in there. And, it, you know, so it's, intuitively it's incredibly simple, but it just didn't, it just took forever to get it adopted. Sure. I think learning about the process of fermentation with, you know, brewing beer or making, um, you know, uh, sauerkraut or kimchi, you realize that one form of bacteria eats the other one that eats the other one that eats the other one and on down the line until you get the one that like, wow, this gives it that flavor that you really love. And that the same thing is happening in us all the time. It's so interesting. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. The microbiome is like the undiscovered cup country in medicine right now. There's so much to learn, you know, even, even like a ketogenic diet, you know, was standard of care for epilepsy for a long time. And, but nobody knew how, quite how it worked. The ketones were doing something strange in the brain, but we just knew it worked. Right. So, so in, in the twenties, it was standard of care. And they did an experiment fairly recently where they put mice on a ketogenic diet and they had epileptic mice they transferred the gut biome of the mice and the ketogenic diet into the epileptic mice and it stopped their seizures. Wow. So the mechanism of action, lots of mechanisms of action go back to the microbiome. It was just so underappreciated what was going on in there. That's amazing. Another thing that in five or 10 years, if we talk again, hopefully we've, we've learned so much from that and really pushed the ball forward there. Um, I love in the book also how you talk about success stories. And one of them is in my backyard, which is great. Can you tell us a little bit about Intermountain and what things they're doing right that might be different from other systems? Yeah. Yeah. Intermountain is an amazing story. So Brent James there, he's a guy, a really transformational guy. And they looked at this problem of over-treatment and variation in treatment. And, you know, he knew it was a massive problem. So how do you tackle it? What he would do is he'd look at their electronic medical record system and he would see the massive variation in treatment for certain things. Right. And when you could see that variation in treatment, he knew there was a problem. He's like, there's, there's, we got to narrow this down to the best practice. What is the best way to do this? So one example is giving antibiotics before surgery. So doctors will do that to prevent surgical infections. No one knew the best time to do it. So he'd look at the EMR. Some doctors were giving it two hours post-surgery. Some were giving it two hours before surgery. Some right at the time of surgery. 
So he had doctors, he put them into groups and had them, you know, do it at those various times. Then they just tracked the infection rate. And they learned, I think it was something like an hour before surgery or something like that was the optimal time to do it. So he established the best practice from this huge uncertain cloud, you know, this variation in treatment. And he would just look one thing after the other, he would check off the list and do that, that same process. And, you know, the totality of that in the end, when you look at Intermountain, there's a 40% reduction in cost. So if you apply that same system, it would solve the healthcare crisis across the U.S. Not only that, their outcomes are so much better than the rest of the country. Heart disease, everything they do pretty much is, is better. So he's just a shining example of how, you know, you can approach this problem. He gets pushed back from the doctors. You know, it kind of, can be a terrifying place to work. You feel like people are looking at you all the time and judging what you're doing. But at the same time, again, he's establishing those guardrails where now you know what to do, what the best thing to do is. And you can, within those guardrails, use your intuition. Why so could, it's just, a, it's a beautiful model. Why could that not be repeated in every hospital system? Is there something preventing that from happening? Well, you know, I think it was Obama. He he used that example in a speech about healthcare, which healthcare terrified him. It was the number one problem that was going to bankrupt the U.S. by far. Everyone talks about Social Security, everything, but healthcare is by far the worst. And he used Intermountain as an example of how we could do it better. But they're also disjointed and fragmented in the U.S. You know, we don't even use the same medical record systems throughout the U.S. So, so getting that, you know. Having one adopted system is really difficult in our within our framework because it's just so disconnected. Wow, that's so interesting. Okay, so I have a series of questions about what what can be done about this. And first of all, I wanted I want to know for the, like a schmuck like me, like I don't use the medical system. I'm not on prescriptions. If, if I go to the hospital, it's because uh, you know I hit a rock on my mountain bike and endoed and broke my collarbone again or something like that. You know what that's all about. Um, what what? How should I be thinking about the issues and how can I solve, help solve, help be part of the solution? Um, what things can can that type of a person do? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I approached that in the book. I, I looked at the sort of institutional problem and how we solve it. And then I looked at like individuals, what, what matters the most for the, for an individual from staying healthy. And it's interesting because you, you start with the idea, well, you can't do much about genetics. And we know that if you're, you're predisposed to genetic disease, you're most likely going to get it or have a higher probability. But when you look at identical twin studies, it's a perfect proxy to measure that. So you look, they're, they're genetic clones. So you watch them throughout their lives. They almost rare, they rarely die of the same disease. So if you get a disease with 100%, what we call coordinates, which means it's 100% genetic, which is very rare, both identical twins will get it. So like hunting disease is an example. Most of the other diseases have a discordance rate, like schizophrenia, I think is 50%. So if one twin gets it, the other twin has a 50% chance of getting it. And then you go down from there, cancer. Most diseases are not genetic. There's a genetic component, but it's it's mostly nurture. And what we what is nurture? Well, nurture is all the lifestyle decisions you're making every day, what you eat, how often do you exercise. And now how do you measure well, what, what nurture variables are the most important? And there's a great study by... Uh, Julianne Lundstedt-Holt, where she just looked at 4 million people, very different lifestyles. So she measured all the big things like smoking, exercise, diet. And she 
measured how much those variables matter in you developing a disease or you staying healthy. What she found was the number one and number two were, were your social life. So the number one variable on how long you will stay healthy is very close connections. So family, friends, people you can count on in a crisis. Number two is social integration. So how how many people do you encounter throughout the day? Do you, you know, do you chat with people at work? Do you go on a mountain bike ride with your buddies? Do you have a book group or whatever? Those two far and away outstripped anything. If you were low in one of those, it was equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Right. So, so that, and then why does that matter? So you look at the 22,000 genes and people that report being very lonely, about 200 of them are very differently expressed and they all relate to the immune system. So you get a really ramp up in this early acceleration phase of the immune system. So in other words, they're chronically inflamed and you get a downregulation in the targeted adaptive immune response. So your ability to fight off viruses and infections is reduced. So your immune system is always kind of low grade turned on and then turned off when you really need it. So that's, that's how that, that biological sort of feedback loop manifests in the body. But that, so that, you know, how you approach that is up to you. How, you know, are you lonely? Can you, you need to get out there? What do you need to do to, to make it so you do not feel lonely? And, and again, that is not a fixed number for most people. It's just, do you feel lonely or not? Some people are introverted and they don't need a lot of connections to feel not lonely. So, but that, you know, and then I looked at the person, all these people, the super, super centenarians, it's one in 7 million people will live to be 110 or above. And they have no idea why they, they have very different lifestyles, but the one commonality is social connections throughout all those people. And I looked at the one, the French lady who, that's the longest lifespan ever recorded. She lived to be 122. And, you know, according to most people, she probably did a lot of things wrong. She started smoking when she was 21. She stopped when she was 117, but she did not smoke excessively. She only had one or two cigarettes after dinner. She drank some port wine. She ate some chocolate. But what she did do is she had an incredibly unstressed life where she did tons of stuff outdoors, played tennis, went hiking, was always never felt her friends said she never seemed stressed at all. She always seemed happy. Um, she drove rode her bike around her village when she turned a hundred and said, thank you to everybody that wished her happy birthday. So the, the point to that to me was you don't need to worry too much, right? Again, back to the body's incredible resilient machine. And in fact, worrying about it too much may be more detrimental than having a cigarette after dinner, for example. I would never promote that, but I think, you know, you get the point. So, yeah, it's not it's not a simple equation where do this, eat this, and do that. It's it's really more nuanced. It's more artful than that. You just need to live a life that, you know, your grandma told you to do. Get outside, play with your friends, eat whole foods, that kind of thing. Yeah, what a beautiful message. And we sit here and try to calculate how many grams of protein you should be eating, what your fasting window should be. And it's like, we should all just probably chill out a bit. And I absolutely love that message. That's great. Um, you know, another question would be for somebody who is entrenched in the medical system and they're going through, for example, cancer treatment. Do they do they need to start doing their own research and start pressing their doctors on different options the way that Martha Tettenborn did? Like, what would you say to that person? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the studies show that, you know, people that are more proactive. Um, I talked to a doctor who he told me that he was a biostatician in the city of Hope, and he told me that 
he looked at the data, I think it was bladder cancer, the, the mortality data on just a small regional hospital. And then one of the major cancer centers where people will go to get clinical trials or just, you know, seek out because they perceived to have better treatment. They were giving the same treatments, the exact same standard of care at both places, but the mortality rates for the cancer center, the higher quality one, were way, way better. It almost looked like two different diseases, he said. And the question then is why? And it's those people were seeking out the best, right? They were just motivated to live more. So it was just a difference in, it was a healthy user bias. You just have a vastly different motivation, a different, a different patient group. So that in itself can be healthcare, just being proactive and not feeling helpless. So yeah, you, you, you do want to seek those things out as much as you can, get, get as much information as you can. And back to the, you know, the lifestyle thing, there was a breast cancer study, 3,000 women with breast cancer, the ones that reported to be lonely versus the ones that had a very robust social network um, were four times more likely to die from the disease. So that's a very intangible thing, you know, just seeking support. And it goes back to when you are stressed like that, you know, stress can be very caustic, but your body can handle stress. But the way it does that is it releases endorphins. And, and those endorphins are prompting you to seek out help. So if you heed that seeking out the help, it makes you more empathetic. So you'll listen to other people's problems too, but you'll also, you know, seek out that social network. If you if you prompt that signal, stress is is has zero caustic. Uh, it, it, it does not affect your health at all. If you don't, it has a very profound effect. Wow. So your body's sort of giving you cues you know, and what to do in those situations as well. Wow. So interesting. I, on that note, my mom was diagnosed with cancer in the late nineties. We switched our diet. We did everything low fat. So super high carbohydrate, worst diet in, in hindsight, but she still made it seven and a half years. And, and, you know, a lot of treatments, a lot of chemo come and go and come and go, but she did make it that long. And I think a huge part of that was her religious beliefs and her involvement in that religion that not only gave her faith, but it gave her something to do and something to wake up for and she was in charge of certain activities and like i think of that when you say the social you know networking as being something that's so beneficial that probably offset a really terrible diet in some degree i would think well yeah well yeah think about it you know cancer is provoked by inflammation and if you go back to that so she's waking up and she's you're right she's got a reason to get up she's going to church she's seeing these people that and it, it feeds back into that epigenetic mechanism in the immune system where you're you're not you wouldn't have that much probability as having that low grade chronic inflammation and those cytokines that promote inflammation feed cancer they're powerfully growth promoting um, factors so it all makes sense biologically right it just it just it, we just didn't appreciate that like we used to now. Yeah. We know now. Fascinating. Yeah. Last question for you. Magic wand, you're king for a day. <laughs> Systemically, how how does the system change? Oh, man. You know, in an ideal world, we, we go towards the, we just, there's no going back from the data, right? The, the revolution in data. And Machine learning and artificial intelligence is making such inroads into every industry, more than people, I think, realize, it, especially into medicine. You know, it's a new, there, there's, it can diagnose, it can read radiological films better than humans now. I mean, vastly better. So kids aren't going into radiology and medicine anymore because they see the writing on the wall. Wow. This is slowly changing, and I think it'll get better slowly. 
the, the question, there's a great example of chess where machines can beat humans in chess right now, but the best way to play chess is have a, a coupled with a human where the human knows the artificial intelligence program it's playing with. It's called advanced chess. So they have people play with their program against other people with their program. That is better than the machine alone. So you know when the, the when you can add in the human intuition at the right time, you get the, the best outcome. So I think going towards that model of intermountain where you encourage intuition, but you have those guardrails is, is where we have to arrive. It's not one at the expense of the other. Both can be there and both can be helpful tools when needed. That's the point. Yeah. And that, that's what the advanced chess has shown us that there, the human component can be magical. It just can pick up subtleties that, you know, in the subconscious, we don't even really know that that's happening. And that's what you, you know, you want from your doctor is that kind of intuition that comes from decades and decades of practice, but confined within what we, the data can, where it can guide us, you know, in the best practices. Wow. So interesting. This has been such an interesting conversation. I really, really thoroughly enjoy talking to you. If you wouldn't mind, tell the listener where they can go to find you and connect with you and your work. Well, go to Twitter. I'm on Twitter and direct message me or anything. Um, I don't post very much, but I'm on there. Uh, my work, I, we have the foundation. That That's fun. We got incredibly philanthropic people donating a lot. So we're, we're trying to kick off that ketogenic trial at Cedar Cyanide. So if anyone wants to help with that, it's a grassroots effort. You know, I don't think it'll be done by the medical system. It's got to be done by the sort of the, the people. So we're, we're close. There's a small funding gap. We're close to getting that filled. And then we're, it's a phase two trial, be the largest trial ever in cancer and the ketogenic diet. Um, yeah, I can't wait for that to happen. That's amazing. That's so encouraging to hear that you are optimistic about the future and that things may be slow, but they can change. And again, the one takeaway being if all of us can just, you know, for how serious and important this is, all of us can chill out a little bit more, slow our lives down a little bit more, appreciate the things that are around us and, and, you know, maybe get a little bit less involved in the news cycle and more involved in, you know, your neighborhood, your birds, social life, all that kind of thing, I think is a wonderful, wonderful message. So, so thank you, Travis Christopherson, so very much for all of your work. Thank you for going out and, and discovering what could have been many, many books and condensing it down into one book. And thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate it. Oh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Casey. Absolutely. Such an honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. Thank you again so very much for continuing to listen to and support Boundless Body Radio. This little passion project that we started almost two years ago just continues to steadily grow. We are reaching more people than ever, and we keep receiving so many inspirational and amazing messages from you. We see it in all the reviews that we get, and we really appreciate that. So thank you so very much for that. We love understanding which guests you really connect with and which content you really appreciate the most. We wanted to take a second also to give a huge shout out to our amazing guests guests. We love the people that we've been able to host and all their amazing content in these awesome conversations. And we have to say in the pipeline, we already have lots of great episodes that will be coming to you soon and lots of great guests. Some will be new to the show and others will be familiar to you if you have been listening to our show for a while. So look forward to that. 
on our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. We are still running a lot of the same offers that we have been running for the last few months. These offers are complimentary, and we've really had a great time connecting with people all over the world who are taking advantage of these. So if you go to our website, which again is myboundlessbody.com, on the made page, you'll find a button that says book now. You can book either a functional movement screen, which is a movement screening tool used to evaluate movement patterns to optimize mobility, fitness, and injury prevention. We do that virtually through Zoom with a bit of creativity. You can book that session, which takes about 30 minutes and is complimentary. You can also see another booking for a 30-minute consultation with us where we can really chat about anything that you like. We can talk about fitness or nutrition or help you come up with a plan for you to be able to reach your goals. As always, it really helps us grow if you leave us a rating and review. So please be sure to go to Apple, leave us a five-star rating and review. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.